Well, go ahead and keep your Bibles out, because we're going to get right back to this passage in just a second. Now, between the uh, fall and spring semesters of my freshman year of high school, my family moved from northwest Georgia, about 45 miles north of Atlanta, to Mobile, Alabama, which I consider my hometown. And um, that's a really formative time in a person's life. Um, High school, I think seventh grade is the most formidable. Seventh grade boys are a different breed. But ninth grade's a big deal too. And so, you know, it's a big deal us moving from friends and family to Mobile, Alabama. Um, To make it worse, uh, I didn't know anybody in Mobile. We'd moved around a lot. My dad was a pastor. And so when we moved to Georgia, we moved for my dad to serve at a church where my granddad was the senior pastor. And so we kind of moved to Georgia to be near family. But moving to Mobile was like a totally different world. Growing up, we'd made jokes about people from Alabama. And uh, now I was one of them. And, uh, you know, it's a strange, strange experience. And I decided that I was going to make this move count. That not knowing anybody was kind of a curse, but it's also a blessing. That I could forge out for myself a new identity. And so one of the first things I did when I showed up to Baker High School for my first day of class is when I introduced myself to the teacher, they'd see me on the roll as Bradley Mills. And they'd say, you know, what do you, what do you go by? And all my life I'd gone by Bradley, Bradley, Bradley. But new identity and all, I go by Brad. And I'd kind of created this backstory in my mind about who I might be. And I started to live out that identity. It included growing my hair out long. And uh, it all worked. I got a picture here. <laughs> this is me. I think this is, uh, this is about two years into the transformation from Bradley to Brad. And uh, it worked, man. I created this new identity for myself. God had been transformed. And it was wonderful. Nobody knew me. They just knew what I was presenting myself to be. And I don't know, maybe you wish you could have a fresh start. I I want a do-over for 2020, for instance. But maybe you wish you could switch jobs. You wish you didn't have to go to the school you go to. You just need a fresh start. You want to be somebody different. Well, in our passage this morning, as we've already read, we get that. God gives us a fresh start. He makes us totally new. He transforms us from the inside out. And and this morning, as we continue working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want you to know, God calls every Christian to a new way of life that's rooted in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Right? You can have a fresh start. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Over the past few weeks, we have been camping out in chapter 4 and uh, trying to understand this hinge chapter. Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians praising God for all the work that he's accomplished in them. The work that you read about from chapter 1, verse 3 on, that God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world, that in love he predestined them to adoption as children of God and to his family, that he raised them up with Christ and seated them with him in the heavenly places, that though they were dead in their trespasses and sins, God made them alive with Christ, that he took people from all kinds of backgrounds, from Georgia and Alabama and Texas, and he united them into one body, the body of Christ called the church. So Paul praises God for all this, and then in chapter 4, he hinges to the practical stuff, the stuff we're going to see starting next week, the real nitty-gritty of what should I do, Paul? 
And he hinges it by spending a significant amount of time on the responsibility each Christian has to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We saw that in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, two weeks ago. That's our responsibility. Every Christian has a responsibility to maintain unity in the body. Last week, we saw the resources God gives us to do that, to promote unity. And those are the spiritual gifts that we use to build each other up until we attain to the uh, fullness of the faith, the unity of the faith and the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we've been looking at this, the unity of the body that each of us is responsible for. And all of this flows from Paul's charge, his exhortation, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's Ephesians 4.1. So we live up to the calling by promoting unity in the church. And I appreciate the way you all do that. But today we see another important dimension of living up to this calling. And it's the pursuit of personal holiness. And Paul kind of returns back to verse 1, where he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But this time he does so from a negative side. He says, don't walk in this way. And so this is what he says in verse 17. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Listen, if the Ephesians, and by extension, if we are going to live worthy of the calling to which we've been called, we have to adopt a new way of life that's distinct from the world. Paul says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. When Paul describes these people, these unbelieving Gentiles, as Gentiles, he, he, it's actually a pretty interesting term. I mean, we've seen um, several times al already that one of the things Paul is trying to magnify about God's plan to sum up all things in Christ is the way that he's taken believers in Jesus from the Gentiles and from the Jews and brought them together. He said back in Ephesians 2.16 that he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility to create one new man in Christ. The week we were on that passage, I tried to really emphasize that what Paul is saying here is that all those normal labels and ethnic divisions cease to mean anything in the church. You don't come in as a Gentile Christian or as a Jewish Christian. You're just a Christian. You're a person who is in Christ. And so here when he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do it, it's kind of amazing because there are some people in that church who continue to identify themselves as a Gentile. They were raised in the pagan Gentile religions, and that's who they are. But Paul is trying to remind them, no, you are liberated from who you once were, the pattern of life that you were brought up in, and you're set free to live a distinct way of life. After all, I mean, the picture he paints of these Gentiles is not too rosy, is it? I mean, he heaps up all these negative descriptions, and it, it kind of starts from the top and, and works its way out. Right? He talks about their mind, he talks about their heart, and then he talks about their actions. We're going to see those actions next week as he contrasts the way of Christ and the way of the Gentiles. But first, we need to understand this process of how our behavior begins in our minds. And so he says, they are living in the futility of their minds. Verse 17. Literally, this means 
Their heads are empty, the emptiness of their minds. Uh, the, the New Living Translation says they are hopelessly confused. That is the way of life for these Gentiles. In fact, Paul goes on and he says they're darkened in their understanding and ignorant. I mean, you heap all of these things together and what you get is their actual minds, you know, the, where does the mind originate in the human body? That's a good one to look up on uh, psychology today. Where is our consciousness and mind? But he says their minds are empty. And then their understanding, their thinking ability, their reasoning capacities are dark. There's no light in them. And as a matter of fact, you put all that together and they are totally ignorant. And I was trying to wrap my mind around this and an image came to me. Now, if y'all have ever gone for a hike, been out in the woods late at night, starts to get dark and discovered that you didn't know where you were. I've never been there. But I can imagine how disorienting that would be. You're in a place you're unfamiliar with, lost in the woods. It's completely dark. Maybe you don't have a flashlight. Maybe you got a map, but you're, you're reading it and you have no way to see anything on the map. You have no way of telling where the signs are for the trail. You are completely lost. You've got a couple of options. They tell you to stay put, right? Just stay where you are because the search party will come for you. And if you're wandering around in the woods, you'll make all the problems worse. If you get up and start walking, you are going somewhere, but you have no clue where. You're just sort of exacerbating the situation, taking one bad situation and making it worse. And according to Paul, that's basically the way the Gentiles go about their lives. They're empty in their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. And they're ignorant. No way of knowing right and wrong, up from down. They just mindlessly, heartlessly go about their lives, pursuing all kinds of unclean things with greediness. Paul hammers this picture home throughout his letters. He talks about it in Romans 1, verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are the Gentiles. Paul is concerned that the church be distinct from, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Um, it's a sad condition to be in, to not know your right hand from your left, as God tells Jonah at the end of Jonah chapter 4. It's, it's not good, right, to not have a clear sense of direction, but that's exactly where the Gentiles are. And you want to feel compassion. I want to feel compassion for them. Think, well, they just don't know any better. But Paul's made the point consistently that they do know better. This isn't innocent ignorance. This is a willful rejection of the knowledge that God has given them. And as a result, their minds are corrupted. But it's not just their minds. Paul says they have a hard heart. And they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice 
every kind of impurity. This idea of being greedy to practice every kind of impurity and to give yourself to sensuality, it's, it's crazy because you could talk about it in terms of indecency. They have no regard for what people think is right or wrong or what God thinks is right or wrong. They're just going to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And because that's the course of their life, the habitual pattern of their life is to do whatever they want, they've become calloused and no longer feel any prick of the conscience that God has put within them. They no longer feel bad when they do what they know is wrong. They have habituated their lives. They have rewired the neural pathways of their brain so that they have no remorse for sin. And these are the people that Paul says the Ephesians have to be distinct from. For the Ephesians, I mean, this would have been concrete. These are real experiences that they would have known. Some of them would have remembered going to the temple of Artemis right there on the edge of the sea, worshiping an idol. They would have remembered the debauchery, the pursuit of sensuality that Paul talks about here and that he's going to spell out in a little more detail later in the chapter. They would have recognized that Paul's exhortation is a call to be different from the person they used to be. That's what Paul is after. He knew how tempting it was for them to hear the message of Jesus, to believe that Jesus had saved them from their sins, but then to continue living in the way they had always lived, in the cultural, social, ethical patterns of their life as a Gentile. But Paul said they were called to pursue a way of life that was distinct from the world. And I think we could use the same reminder today. I mean, I like one commentator said it like this, that if you boil down this way of life, the thinking, feeling, pursuit of sin, it would be this. They live completely for themselves. And I think that is like so apt for the moment we're living in in America. I mean, you, you think about it. I was, if an alien came to America and, and was researching us and he was taking detailed notes about the kind of lives we lived, he wouldn't see a lot of people showing up at their local pagan temple you know, burning incense to the goddess Artemis. But he would see other things, right? These are some things I've wrote down. He would see a culture defined by hedonism, the pursuit of what feels good. He'd see the exaltation of the autonomous self, that nobody has any right to tell me what to do. This is my life. This is my body. I belong to me. And as a result, he would see a culture that has rejected Sound judgment and common sense redefines all kind of categories, gender identity, sexual orientation. People complain about materialism, right, capitalism, but then they turn around and buy stuff they think is going to make them happy. We don't trust the experts. You know, this is a common thing we hear, you know, no, no faith in the experts. But you turn on the TV or you look at the New York Times bestseller list, and it's an endless stream of self-help gurus, people who are purporting to be experts on how to make your life better. We gobble it up. We are duplicitous, schizophrenic in our pursuit of sin. We're just like them. And I wish that Christians were immune but y'all know we're not. 
And that's the, the problem. Paul says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Apparently that was the problem. That some of these Christians who'd found themselves identifying and believing, trusting in Jesus, had just sort of smuggled in some of their old patterns of life. Some of the things they thought they could just baptize and it'd be okay because their sins were forgiven, they're going to heaven when they die, everything is going to be good. And Paul says no longer live that way. Pursue a way of life that is distinct from the world. So how do we get there? Right, I've, maybe you identify with that, you understand, yes, you're guilty of sin. So how do you get to the place where you're no longer living as a Gentile lives? Well, it doesn't come from legislating morality, convincing people around us that they've got to obey some kind of law. It starts from within. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. See, Paul knew if the Ephesians were going to turn the corner, turn over the new leaf, experience the transformation from Bradley to Brad, it was going to have to be because the Holy Spirit was at work within them. So he reflected on the earliest days of their life. I mean, you can imagine the Ephesian church hearing the word of the gospel preached by maybe the apostle or by an evangelist, hearing that Jesus was God's son sent from heaven to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross for sinners. That though he was buried in a tomb on the third day, God raised him from the dead where he lived among his disciples for 40 days before he ascended to the Father where he sits at his right hand from where he'll come to judge the living and the dead. They heard that and they were like, man, that is amazing. I am a sinner. I need a savior like that. I want to follow Jesus. And after the apostle or the evangelist finished his task, he handed them over to the shepherds and teachers who instructed them in the basics of the faith. And Paul identifies those three basics, the three basics of Christianity. He says that you were told to put off the old self, to be renewed in your mind, and to put on the new self. These are the facts of the teaching about Jesus. But the thing that jumps out to me this, in this passage is what Paul says in 420. It's, it's crazy. You read it and you think that Paul forgot a word. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. You think, oh, Paul, you've, you, you've got a typo here. That's not the way you learned about Christ. But Paul says that's not the way you learned Christ. Learning Christ is the other side of the coin to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ and Him crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. This isn't learning about Christ. And Paul didn't preach about Christ because it's more than just an information transfer or an indoctrination, or even like a catechism. It's more than that. It is a personal encounter with the living Christ. That's the only thing that can change a person. The Ephesians are going to go from living as a Gentile to no longer living as a Gentile. It's not because they're going to finally learn the magic thing 
that's going to flip the switch. It's not because they're going to finally know enough that they're able to just let go their sinful behaviors. They're going to change, be different. It's because they're going to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And so Paul reminds them, he says, you had that. This is not the way you learned Christ. And so he reminds them of those things that they learned in Christ. That they had taken off the old self. You put off the old self, he says in verse 22. Look at that with me, I want, because we're going to spend some time here on this old self. Or your, your Bible may say the old man. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. This old self is the self that Paul just described in verses 17 through 19. The self that was futile in its thinking, unfeeling in its heart, had a hard heart. The one that greedily pursued all kinds of uncleanliness. This is the self that Paul says in Galatians 2.20, has been crucified with Christ. The self, he says in Romans 6, it's been buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. See, before they came to Christ, before they learned Christ and had this life-changing encounter with Him through the preaching of His Word, this is who the Gentiles and the Jews were. They were people alienated from the life of God. People who Paul says in Ephesians 2, you maybe memorize this, were dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience, pursuing the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of their body and their mind. That is who they were. This is their old self. And what Paul says is that when they heard the truth about Jesus, when they saw him as publicly portrayed as crucified, that's what Paul describes his preaching as in the book of Galatians. You know what that means. When the preacher's preaching, and all of a sudden you feel like all of heaven's spotlights are on you. And the preacher sort of fades into the background. And it's like God himself is speaking to you. Paul said, you remember when that happened, when God got your attention. When you saw Jesus face to face and you realized that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, you remember this and you know the truth. That in that moment, though it was invisible to you, God knew exactly what He was doing. He was making you alive together with Jesus. He was granting you new life by His Spirit. You were being born again. And from that point on, every person who is in Christ is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 That is the old self. It's done away with, taken off like a garment, ready to be replaced by something else. And that something else is the new self, which is created by God in true righteousness and holiness. This self, this new self, is not a new and improved version of you. Like I went from the old Bradley to the new Brad. It's, it's, a, it's just the same guy just dressed up a little bit with some better hair. You know? No, that is not what God's after in us. He doesn't want to freshen you up, make you better. He wants to take your old self and replace it with something totally different. And it's actually with Jesus himself. This new self is the character of Christ. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Christ is the new self. That's why Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but the Son of God who lives through me. 
That is who is living in you. That is the new self created by God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ intends to live His life through you. And the result of that will be a totally transformed way of being. Not just new behavior, like He's going to give you what you need to finally be the person you always dreamt of. But He's going to change you from the inside out. And that process begins with the renewed mind. See, the mind is the thing that got the Gentiles in trouble. They're futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, ignorantly alienated from the life of God. But what God does is gives us a new mind. I think of it as the recalibration, where that old way of thinking is replaced by a new way of thinking, the way of Jesus. Paul calls it in Philippians 2, the mind of Christ. So what happens is when we take off the old self, the self that's greedily pursuing what makes me happy, put on the new self, which is Christ, to pursue the way of life that He's called me to live. God transforms my inner person so that who I am on the inside, slowly but surely, begins to match up with who I am on the outside. So no longer live as the Gentiles live, Paul says. It makes no sense. And Paul says about these renewed mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He told his ministry partner, Titus, in Titus 3, this is a good one, you need to write this down, Titus 3, 3 through 5. Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the Apostle Paul describing his life. Isn't that amazing? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if we want to be different, transform, no longer living as the Gentiles live, it's not going to be because we create a cheat sheet for ourselves. The ten daily disciplines and practices of a true Christian. Commit ourselves to living it out. It's going to be because the way of life God's called us to live is rooted in the transforming work of His Holy Spirit who regenerated us, renewed our minds, helped us to know what is good and pleasing to God, and enables and empowers us to live it out by choice. We're going to see that next week. You can read ahead if you'd like from verses 25 all the way down to chapter 5, verse 2. And look at some of these things with me. Why don't we, why don't we just do that now? He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. This is the internal work that the Holy Spirit changes in us, renewing our minds to help us know what is right. Next week we're going to see how that plays out in all of its practicality, in the particular behaviors. But Paul knew, and, and I think we need to understand, that if we're going to get there, to see those patterns of behavior that are in our life plaguing us, bothering us, wishing we could just get a fresh start, 
If we're going to see those things go away, it's going to be as we remember what God has already accomplished. I mean, I don't want you to miss this. According to the Apostle Paul, these three things, the putting off of the old self, the renewing of the mind, the putting on of the new self, are things that have already happened. This transformation has already been worked in them. I am new. Whatever I may feel, whatever I may see, from God's perspective, I'm new. That's why one commentator said that all of this exhortation here in 17 through 24 could really be summarized with the command to be what you are. Live up to who you are in Christ. I think it's time for the church to understand this. I mean, we really have lost our distinctiveness. And as I was trying to figure out how I wanted to conclude with a real good, like, right hook this morning, I was doing some research. It dawned on me that we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But it's not the only letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. In fact, you know this. Jesus wrote a letter to the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2. And if you want to look there with me, look at it and, and listen to what he tells them. Revelation chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, Paul writes to this Ephesian church, and we don't know the particular circumstances that inspired his writing. But he did have to say, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He saw something in the pattern of their life that wasn't consistent with who he knew them to be in Jesus. Whatever practices had been smuggled in, whether it was exerting undue authority over one another, whether it was genuine anger and hatred, or whatever, bad speech towards one another, he spends a lot of time talking about that. For some reason, he saw something in them that wasn't consistent with their identity in Christ. And when we look at the church today, not, not central only, but the church at large, there are things in us that we need to repent of. That we have sort of lost our first love. That we've been sort of distracted. You know, we, we see some of these things that the Gentiles do, pursuing sensuality, and it seems like almost... Every week there are scandals and issues come up with Christian leaders. You know, they parrot politicians on the right and on the left. They need to get back. We need to get back 
to who Christ has called us to be, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, to not use authority in the way that they do, but to serve just as Jesus served. I think that's why Peter could say in 1 Peter 4.17 that it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. That we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So we need to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. But that's only going to happen if individual Christians like me and you take Paul's command to no longer walk as the Gentiles do to heart. To understand that we have a personal responsibility. I mean, James puts it like this when he wrote to his churches. He said, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer follow the course and pattern of the world. Be different. Pursue a new way of life. I think every Christian, with all the time we got on our hands, could stand to do some soul searching. You know, to understand that, yes, we are forgiven, and from time to time Christians sin. Every day I sin. But what Paul's talking about here, to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, means to assess the pattern and course of your life, the habits you have, and to give up those habits that are inconsistent with who you are in Jesus, to live in a manner worthy of the calling. So my challenge to you is to take that to heart, to remember what Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if any man would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. That the Christian life is more than that extra little bit to help us become who we always dreamt of being. It's more than permission to do what we feel like, knowing that we're going to go to heaven when we die. It's a call to die to ourselves, pursue the way of Christ. That's why Jesus preached in his first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. To really take a hard look about our conduct and to turn ourselves and go the opposite direction. You know, I tried to do that in February of 2004 when I arrived in Mobile, Alabama, presenting myself as Brad. And it was pretty good for a few weeks. You know, I'm Brad. People would ask me where I came from, and I embellished the stories, no doubt. I wasn't walking with Jesus at that point. And so I presented myself to be something I was not. But one Saturday night, it was a few weeks later, my parents made me go to Disciple Now, my church. And there was an evangelist with, this was 2004, so he had brown hair with frosted tips, you know, the highlights and a goatee. And I remember him preaching. And I was sitting back there in the back, so self-righteous. Who does this guy think he is? I'm Brad, you know. But he started teaching about Jesus, started talking about sin, started telling us that we could never earn our way to God. And in that moment, all the personal transformation that I wanted, that I thought maybe I could produce on my own, was shown to be what it was. A poor substitute for the real thing. But if I wanted to be different, if I didn't want to be the person I was, the only way I could be different was through Jesus. So that Saturday night, sitting in the back, back right of the gym, and he asked, does anybody here need to give their life to Jesus? And I remember raising my hand. And I remember he said, well, why don't you come down to the front? And I remember me and everybody else, but it was real for me. I got out of my spot, 
and went down the aisle and knelt in that altar and gave my life to Jesus. And he began in me that day a transformation project where from that moment on, I might have been Brad and I might have been trying to produce some kind of change in myself, but God was invisibly working, making me the person I am today. And the reality of it is, is that there are a lot of people who are like I was. The thought they could make it on their own, that they could do this whole transformation thing in their own way. But they need to hear the thing that I heard that night. That you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself better. You can't read enough books or watch enough talk shows to help you change the person you are. You're futile in your thinking. You don't have the resources within yourself to undertake the construction project that you need. But in His mercy, God sees you as you are and He loves you as you are. But He loves you too much to leave you that way. And so He sent His Son Jesus to live a sinless life, the life that you should have lived, life perfectly in tune with God's will and direction. And having lived a sinless life, He willingly laid His life down to die on a cross for sinners like you and me. Prophet Isaiah says, He was bruised for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. It pleased the Lord to crush Him so that you'd be spared. And this morning, as I'm talking about no longer living as the Gentiles live, no longer allowing your mind to take you habituously, thoughtlessly, heartlessly after sin over and over and over again, you feel overwhelmed because you know that on your own, that's all you can expect. And you're right. But this morning, God is inviting you to die to yourself, to put off your old way of thinking and your old way of living, to be renewed in your mind by the work of the Holy Spirit, to be born again so that you can be a new creation, created in the image and likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness, set free to live in a way that pleases Him. But you need to do what I did. And you need to make what you're feeling in your heart public. You need to tell your friends, let me know, that from this day forward, you're committing to living your life for Jesus. You've given up. You need to be transformed by Him. As if I can help you, Figure out what that looks like in your life. To lay down your rights. To die to yourself. To put off the old man. To take up the new man. I know we're not supposed to hug or shake hands or anything, but I'd be glad to talk to you. So please, on your way out, grab me by the arm and let me know that you need to talk about it. Because God has called you to a new way of life that's rooted in the transforming work of His Holy Spirit. And I'd love to walk with you through it. Y'all pray with me.